Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will deliver you timely insights into the U.S. energy sector as well as global oil markets. And we'll touch on everything from the summer driving season and gas prices to OPEC to renewable energy. So looking forward to what will be a wide-ranging and productive conversation. Uh, Joining us for the conversation, glad to welcome back from our partners at VanEck, uh, Sean Reynolds, Portfolio Manager for the Natural Resources Equity Strategy, responsible for company analysis and specializing in energy companies. Uh, Sean has been an investment management team member with VanEck since 2005. Also joining us for today's conversation from the UBS Chief Investment Office, uh, glad to welcome back Jay Dobson, Energy and Utilities Analyst for the Americas. So Jay, Sean, welcome to you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners and our clients. I know we have plenty to cover, so we'll get right into it with perhaps acknowledging that the U.S. energy sector, it has had a strong performance showing here in 2022. Now, that's relative to the S&P 500. Now, despite what has been a challenging month of June, which we're about to turn the page on, we're recording on Thursday, June 30th. So, Sean, what is your performance outlook as we look ahead into the second half, let's say over the next six months, through year-end for the U.S. energy sector. Well, thanks, Dan, and, and thanks for having me. And, and you know, you're right. You know, we've, we've had a really good run of it. We can even push it back into into last year, but really have to say that the traditional energy sector looks very strong in our view, um, especially in a relative perspective, uh, but also in a historical absolute sense. You know, if you really think about operations, financial strength, valuations, they all look remarkably strong for the oil sector, oil and gas sector. And really, uh, you know, in some cases, the most attractive they've, they've been in my career, which unfortunately stretches back all the way to the 80s. So dating myself there. But, um, you know, this is about as good as I've ever seen it. Operationally, companies are, you know, moderately growing their production, but more importantly, they're, they're meeting or beating their targets. And they continue to improve their technologies and innovations to become more efficient on that front. Uh, financially, most of the companies in this sector are extremely strong. Again, the most attractive that I've ever seen. Net debt to EBITDA ratios for, for the whole sector are under one times. Uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago in the middle of the shale phenomena that if a company was, you know, four times debt to EBITDA, it was quite sturdy. You know, we kind of like that. Um, capital returns are also extremely strong. Right now, you're getting double-digit returns on capital and cash flow yields, which are translating into some of the most attractive dividend yields and share buybacks in the market. You know, and again, in my career, I never thought I'd be saying that. You know, dividend yields are always zero or the low end of the market. And then finally, the valuations are definitely the cherry on top of the cake with with uh, average enterprise value EBITDA ratios of around two and a half times. You know, as low on the ones for for some companies, and, and the most expensive companies in in the sector being in the five five range. Um, you know, this is cheaper than just about any other sector in the market. Well below you know ten year average valuations for the energy space as a whole. Um, and uh, you know, in many cases, these energy names as I said are, cha- are trading all time lows, which is, uh, is in our view very very compelling margin of error. Uh, which we're always looking at. Everybody's looking, looking for that margin of error, uh, and something that um, 
makes this sector extremely attractive. Sean, thank you for that backdrop. And it is interesting to hear about how we got to where we are today with respect to performance. Uh, Jay, similar question, thoughts on the group currently. And as we look out over the next six months, what's your performance outlook for the U.S. energy sector? Yeah, thanks, Dan. And, and, and thanks, Sean, for doing this. I know I'm filling big shoes. Uh, Nikki Decker used to do this and uh, really thrilled to be uh, be joining the call here. You know, as, as most of our listeners know, we remain overweight energy in, in the context of a diverse equity portfolio. And as, as Sean just highlighted, um, you know, the fundamentals of the sector, you know, just really look compelling right here. You know, you look on a global perspective, supply demand balance remains very, very tight. We can see that in, in time spreads for Brent or WTI or refining margins, what we call crack spreads. Um, there's a lot of stuff to like. Um, and the reality is we also have very low inventories. I'm confident we're going to talk about recessionary impacts, but um, low inventories are, are going to be have to be refilled. And, and that's going to be something that provides a little extra demand uh, when, in fact, we see a recession. Um, you know, certainly one will eventually come as, as we have in sort of bead or cured the business cycle. Um, you know, what we've been seeing over, over the last, uh, you know, several uh, quarters is, is sort of this reopening demand. I'd, I'd say demand remains very resilient, both globally for uh, oil and gas, um, but as well for, for gasoline and, and diesel. Um, and I think when you look at the investment, or I should say lack of investment in the seven or eight years prior uh, to the period we're in right now, uh, it, it certainly starts to hint at, at a multi-year cycle uh, as we, I think, become more focused focused on energy security, reliability, you know, maybe a little bit on affordability, and, and, and perhaps equally on, on decarbonization or, or carbon intensity. Um, but I, I think when you mix all that together, um, as Sean pointed out, You've got very positive free cash flow. Free cash flow yields are in double digits, actually, about 13% for the S&P energy sector. And it's all over the map. Some of the, you know, U.S. onshore EMPs are, you know, sort of those high team free cash flow yields. And as Sean said, uh, a lot of that cash flow is coming back to you in the form of variable dividends, dividends, and, and share repurchases. So with valuation compelling pretty positive uh, macro backdrop from an energy perspective. Um, I, I, I continue to support our, our overweight on, on energy in the, in the context of a diverse equity portfolio. So, Jay, a few moments ago, you mentioned recessionary impacts, and you think about how we live in such fluid times at the moment, thinking out over the second half, a range of macroeconomic monetary policy scenarios could play out, and you think about the headwinds, everything from inflation, labor market concerns, geopolitical risks, the list seems endless. Uh, Sean, what do you identify as being the top risks to the energy group that could perhaps disrupt that performance outlook or yield some volatility? Well, there's no doubt that, you know, we've kind of transitioned from, say, last, you know, fall and winter, where kind of growth was a real tailwind to, you know, a, a real concern over you know, where we're heading in recession is now you know part of our vocabulary, uh, you know somewhat like inflation, you know kind of came back to our vocabulary you know a few years ago. Now recession is part of our vocabulary, but we really only see a significant recession as you know a material risk to the group. 
Demand is going to have to come way off by several million barrels a day to make a dent in the supply-demand balance, in, in our view. And, you know, and that, and that happens in the past. Uh, you've seen that. Um, but what's interesting about, you know, where we sit in the overall cycle of the oil and gas space is almost in every case when you've seen this recession come, come into play, CapEx has been on the upswing. Supply has been on the upswing in the oil and gas space as opposed to what we see now. As we are, you know, as Jay was just pointing out, you know, many years of underinvestment in the space, and now we're really struggling to, you know, to hit these supply numbers. And that's on a global basis. Um, you know, and, and of course, this whole thing with regards to, you know, a, a recession uh, and, and where we're sitting, this is in the face of, of ratcheting sanctions against Russian oil uh, production and dwindling excess capacity in, in OPEC. In fact, you know, we just, you know, we, we just, I think we might talk about it later, but we just had the OPEC meeting today. Um, but and not not much came out of it. You know, we really think the Fed is in a in a very tough spot. It needs to tighten monetary policy to fight inflation, but it does so. Um, Probably by resulting in a tougher employment market and, and may, you know, tip us into that recession. If we do head into recession, many economists believe it'll be kind of shallow. Uh, duration of the, of the recession is up for, for debate. But as long as it stays fairly shallow, we actually think that's probably a good thing for the oil and gas sector in terms of they, they may continue to put or force discipline on the, the E&P companies and the corporates to spend less. Um, and so that will extend this, you know, overall supply tightness that we're seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we just think we're going to see a lot of reluctance um, to increase CapEx budgets. And uh, that will be, uh, you know, good for a, for a long time, unless the economy really gets into a funk. Thank you, Sean. And good point about the OPEC meeting. That timing worked out well for the purposes of this conversation, and we can dive a bit deeper into key takeaways to the extent that there are any in a few moments. Though, Jay, just want to get your thoughts on headwinds, risks to the group. Dan, it's, it's really interesting. You know, it's, it's hard to think that energy would somehow prove immune to uh, any recession that were to show up, regardless of, of the intensity of, of of that recession. But I do think Sean raises a really good point. I, I think the balance is going to be, as always is, investor perceptions versus fundamentals. Um, I think we have to, and obviously it'd be hard to forecast, we have to first sort of define that that recession. You know, we're struggling a lot internally here that, you know, if we're continuing to see some recovery in Chinese demand, you know, that may well prove an offset to were we to see a recession in, in the U.S. and, and the EU. Um, I think it's also important as we try and forecast that to recognize, as Sean was pointing out, you know, it's not oil demand globally declines in every recession. In fact, we've seen oil demand decline fairly rarely when we look out over the last 40 or 50 years um, across across recessionary periods. And as I pointed out earlier, we've got very low inventories. You know, take, for example, the 180 million barrels of, of oil that's coming out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR, as we affectionately call it here in the U.S., um, that will have to be refilled. So in essence, by releasing that now, you've created incremental demand, you know, starting 
potentially as early as October or November of this year. So I, I think that the reality is, you know, adjusting for uh, for recession, energy would not prove immune. But I do think we'll have to keep in mind that, as we were mentioning a moment ago in the performance outlook, these companies are paying, you know, very, very high dividends to shareholders um, as a result of oil prices. If we're going to have, you know, these high inventory rebuilds and, and, and sort of uh, potentially a, a mild recession, as Sean was talking about, you know, we may be talking about, you know, crude oil prices, you know, just barely below 100, let's call it 80 to 100. Um, these companies will be generating very high free cash flow and may be in a position to pay you 6, 7, 8% yields, uh, though variable, those will not go unnoticed in, in a di- difficult market environment. So I think if we're adjusting for recession, you'll have a, a bit of tension between perception and fundamentals. Ultimately, I'm a believer in maybe 30 years I've been doing this too long. I do believe fundamentals win out. One of the things that really, I think, stands out about how the industry is different now, the industry is different now than it has been in the past, is how executives in the industry get paid. For, you know, Jay and I have been both been doing this for a long, long time, and I don't know that we've ever seen executives get paid the way they do now. Before, it's always about production, reserves, about growth. You know, so, you know, if you added reserves, if you added production, you got bigger and bigger, you got paid more. Now, many of these executives, their compensation schemes are, are sans growth. Everything's about returns. Everything's about free cash flow yield. And there's ESG metrics in there. And it's about shareholder returns. And, you know, that makes their incentive a lot different than it's been in the past. So, and in some ways, makes it a lot easier than it has been. Because growing the oil and gas company is really, really hard, particularly, you know, 20 years ago when it was all about exploration. But now they can look forward and say, hey, I can hit these return numbers. I can provide these these dividend yields that, that is attracting, uh, you know, a lot of investors. That's a little bit easier for me. And so I think that's, a, you know, something different in terms of this cycle. No, very interesting considerations there. So thank you for adding that, Sean. I just want to circle back on oil prices for a moment, maybe run with that. You did bring up the OPEC, OPEC plus meeting a few moments ago. Anything in the way of reflections from this particular set of meetings that you'd like to share with us? And I know in the headlines, there's a lot of questions as to what goes into these output decisions. So perhaps any color there for our listeners, you can offer as well would be appreciated. Well, you know, they just ratified the final increment of increasing production by, you know, 648,000 barrels a day for August. That's the last of, of this plan that restores the, uh, the 9.7 million barrels a day that they shut in at the kind of, uh, you know, in, in response to COVID. So formally, the agreement has ended and they've given no indications of uh, with respects to the next moves that they might have, um, been really silent about that coming out of out of the meeting. Um, uh, presumably, something's going to happen with uh, with President Biden's upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia. Um, there's been a lot of pre chatter before the trip that set expectations pretty high that he'll come back with a win. Um, and I think that's especially true. You would not be hearing that kind of chatter since he has to go over there and eat a lot of crow, given his pledge to make Saudi Arabia a pariah over the Khashoggi murder, it'd be a definite slap in his face and a serious deterioration of the U.S.-Saudi uh, relationship. 
if he doesn't come some come come back with something out of them. <clears throat> but I think what has become clear over the last several years is that there isn't a lot more that they can do. You've seen most of the, uh, the OPEC countries and OPEC countries, you know, falling below what their quote unquote quota is. Um, and the only company or countries who are really kind of, uh, you know, hitting their numbers were Russia before this happened and, you know, Saudi and, and the UAE, uh, you know, Saudi right now is producing close to its all time high. So that's at about 10.4 million barrels a day. And only in two different times in the history of Saudi Arabia did it ever produce more than that, um, clo- over a million, uh, over uh, 11 million barrels a day. That was in November 2018. And then they, I don't know if you remember, right before COVID or right when COVID started, they had this scorched earth policy where they were trying to crank up production right at the start of COVID, really to punish you know, Russia um, as a scare tactic to other OPEC plus members, you know. Um, they, they got above 11, but then they pulled it right back down the next month. Um, nevertheless, over the last five years, you know, 2015 to 2019, taking away 2021, uh, production averaged a little over or right around, uh, what was it, 10, 10.2 million barrels a day. So the country is already, you know, well above, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of average and it's reaching the limits of its capacity which is in any case only about 11 million barrels a day. So they only have about a million barrels to go before they're completely tapped out. So, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot to, you know, to take away from it other than um, there, there's not a lot there, not a lot, a lot there's not a lot left to, to go. And I don't think the calculus is any more than, you know, okay, we might dribble out a little bit more, but we don't want to run out. We don't want to be at full capacity and utilization and so there's not a lot left there, and I don't think it's that sophisticated of a, of a formula. What Sean said is really important, Dan. You know, we can talk about what OPEC said, Jid, at this latest meeting. Uh, I think it fully met expectations. But the real issue in my mind is spare capacity. You know, we have a slightly different view. We believe Saudi Arabia has a little more than 11 million barrels a day of, of, spare, of uh, total capacity. So, you know, maybe a million and a half barrels right now. But it doesn't actually make a difference, that half million barrels. The key in my mind is going to be at what point does the market stop accepting, yep, there's plenty of spare capacity or at least spare capacity and worry, my goodness, when is that spare capacity unavailable? You know, we've seen this happen, and in commodity markets, they tend to happen um, in in a a fairly quick fashion where people go from worrying about price and supply and worry about, you know, I may not be able to get my supply, and that eradicates the concern about price um, because obviously energy, oil remains sort of the lifeblood of, of the global economy. And I'd say one other thing, you know, Sean was referencing... Uh, Russia, uh, I'd, I'd argue, as we have, you know, they've been better at uh, getting their uh, uh, sanctioned uh, production sold globally. But I, I think the real focus has to be, you know, out two, three years. You know, we've seen what happens in Iran, in Venezuela, when, you know, Western vendors leave. All the Western vendors have left Russia. And I know OPEC is rather concerned, not so much what happens now in the next six months, but this is what sort of highlights the, the most 
multi-year uh, investment cycle Sean and I were referencing early. You know, what if what if Russia's down two or three million barrels a day two or three years out? Um, that may be just about the time some of the supply Saudi Arabia's bringing on, Exxon and Hess is bringing on, and Guyana may, may actually be sort of offsetting that. Well, we thought that was the release valve that was going to make everybody feel okay. So um, it, it, it really is a tight supply-demand balance. And as Sean said, uh, OPEC, it's, it's going to be really key what's next between uh, President Biden's visit in, in July and uh, certainly what, what Saudi Arabia responds with. Maybe just to touch on gas prices for a few moments. Now, we are currently in the summer driving season. Consumers continue to feel the pain of energy price inflation at the pump, myself included. So I'm curious, Sean, from your vantage point, what it might take to alleviate the pain at the pump and when might consumers expect to enjoy some price relief? Yeah, I'm not real optimistic on that front. Um <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I think there's likely will be some seasonal relief at the end of the summer. Um, but, you know, at the same time, as we come out of the summer driving season, uh, you know, China's obviously opening up. We've talked about that and they may come back and you know, and you're going to continue to see uh, reopening and a lot more. I, mean, I know about, about you guys, but, you know, I'm back to doing some business travel and I can see that ramping up again in the fall. And of course, um, one thing that we, you know, barely talked about, I mean, or, or Jay has mentioned is, is inventories, but, uh, you know, the U.S. is really going to come to the end of, of its, uh, strategic petroleum reserve release. Um, you know, that's been several uh, hundred thousand barrels a day into the, or you know, almost several hundred thousand barrels a day into the market. Um, you know, that's, that'll be going away. Uh, anything to do with Russia to be tightening up. So I don't see, a huge amount of relief. I mean, other than just a little bit of, of seasonal softness. Yeah. No, Sean, I, I think you make a really, really good and important point there. I mean, refiners are running really hard right now. Inventories, refined product, so gasoline, diesel, et cetera, you know, remain pretty low. Um, you know, a lot of states are doing things, you know, perversely to actually incent demand by cutting state taxes and, and the like. I think that's part of the reason we've been seeing demand uh, prove as, as resilient as it is. Uh, the, the one thing I'd, I'd mention, though, that you know, if I always sort of think, what am I losing sleep over? You know, hurricane season um, is is right upon us. And, you know, we need only look back last year and, and realize that, you know, hurricane came through the Gulf, made landfall and, and took out uh, Phillips 66's Alliance refinery. Uh, it's no longer operating, was under 12 feet of, of salt water. So um, we don't really have uh, the inventories or, quite frankly, the capacity to deal with that. Uh, I can tell you, I, I know on, on sort first-hand knowledge that the White House is pretty concerned about this. So, you know, I don't, I agree with Sean completely. I don't think we get a lot of relief. You're seeing a little bit right now, but I don't think we get a lot of relief in, in gasoline or, or diesel prices. And I, I still think the, you know, sort of exogenous risk remains to the upside and in a hurricane or, or other uh, weather event that, uh, that, you know, disrupts some, some supply, even if temporarily that's really how tight things are. 
Thank you both for helping us to manage expectations at the pump, and perhaps within a few months' time, we can enjoy some temporary seasonal relief. Uh, though I do want to hit on a topic, Sean, I know we've talked about here on the podcast over the past few years, and Jay, we've certainly had a lot of these conversations as well, uh, that being renewable energy solutions. And it is largely understood as being an all-hands-on-deck, multi-decade initiative. So at the moment, Sean, are there any developments or themes on this front that you're tracking? Yeah, well, you know, I have to say that um, certainly I would say the Russian invasion of Ukraine has certainly proven the idea um, that you, you can't decarbonize supply before you decarbonize demand. So, I mean, that's you know, <laughs> one of the biggest takeaways is that, you know, certainly Europe and even parts of this country, you know, just running too far in front of, of getting away from the or what we call all of the above. But, you know, as you say, all hands on deck uh, approach to to energy transition and transition means transition. But um, with regards to specific developments, I mean, there is no doubt that as we do transition from fossil fuel to metals and particularly with regards to energy security in this country where we've gotten ourselves to be, um, you know, basically energy independent. That's through the advent of shale, oil, and natural gas. You know, we are now, you know, basically energy independent. Um, You know, we're kind of giving that away by saying we're going to move towards electrification of the energy uh, world. And And what really you know, gets us worried is the metals intensity that goes with that and how that metals control is dominated by China, not necessarily the raw ore production, which comes from many different countries. But when you think about the the next step, the final step, which is, uh, you know, basically you know, refining you know, uh, nickel or copper or cobalt or lithium or, or whatever, refining it into a final good and manufacturing to a final good, all that processing or a huge portion of that processing goes, you know, takes, takes place in China. So to put that in context, you know, when we talk, we just talked about OPEC, OPEC plus is about 35, 40% of the global oil market. And, you know, and we had a whole question about it. We talked about its headlines. Everybody's talking about it in the news. But when you think about nickel, about 35% of nickel processing takes place in China, one country as opposed to 23 in OPEC+. Plus. You can go and you can look at cobalt, about 45%. You can look at uh, rare earths, about 85%. And you can even drop down further from there and say solar panels, 70%. Lithium-ion batteries, 70% market share by one country, by China. And that really, really concerns us. So, you know, where where do we go with that? Well, you have to look at government policy and say, you know, it's it seems to have no focus right now with regards to, you know, our energy independence, energy security. And that really disturbs us. However, there's also a great investment opportunities on that. So if you can find some of those, you know, upstream, you know, metals companies, mining companies who have processing attached to them in countries or, or, or friendly places, or even here in the U.S., we find that very, very attractive. So that's definitely something that we are following. Um, just kind of other, you know, uh, you know, kind of supplemental topics that we find interesting, not necessarily hugely attractive from an investment perspective right now, but we have to go down the route of, of hydrogen 
and eventually to carbon sequestration and 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 storage and usage, uh, we have to kind of go down those paths um, in the next five to ten years, and and those will be very interesting places to be in in our view. Sean, that is a great point because I, I think, and I want to talk a little bit about renewables very quickly as we're coming up to the end here. But you know, I think there's this sort of idea in the investment community that this energy transition happens. It happens a lot faster than I think is possible, but it's very negative for the energy in- industry, uh, existing energy industry. And if you talk hydrogen, carbon capture, biofuels, and quite frankly, the energy transition, which in our view takes longer than most people believe, I would argue that sets the case for it actually, the energy transition is actually being a positive for the energy industry. Um, so I, I would argue, look, I completely agree. It's an all of the above approach. We're going to need fossil fuels. I like to say thank God for renewables because given demand growth over the next two or three decades, I'm not convinced fossil fuels could meet that demand. So from a hu- as a human being, I-, I think it's fantastic that renewables are here for certain applications. They are the lowest cost alternatives, but you need to keep in mind, and BP just published their statistical yesterday, 82% 82% of global energy comes from fossil fuels. That is not going to transition away overnight, over a decade, or dare I say, even over three decades. This will take time, um, and we will need a heightened focus, but I would argue that uh, the misnomer is, uh, I believe there's a, there's as much opportunity for energy companies in this energy transition as there is risk. Well, the renewables conversation, a lot there we can follow up on, and it will continue, though. Thank you both for sharing those insights. I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together today before we close out in the way of final thoughts and takeaways. And Jay, we can provide our guest, Sean Reynolds, with the final word. So Jay, I'll ask you, how should energy investors consider an allocation into the space given the current environment, given what lies ahead near term? Sure, Dan. As I began, we remain overweight energy. So uh, we like the refiners right now, believe the setup going into second quarter and dare I even say third quarter is pretty attractive. Um, So we definitely have exposure there. But looking out as we did in our second question towards some, you know, continuum or period that includes the potential for a recession, you know, I really do believe you're going to want to own the integrated and and the EMPs. The EMPs are different because historically that wouldn't have been the answer. But again, the dividend yields we talk about, I I think, are going to be pretty attractive. And then I I wouldn't lose sight, though I I might not be uh, at first uh, overweight. Uh, I think the all field services uh, as we move through this recession um, are, are going to be a critical part of, uh, of energy exposure. The recession does, or any recession does not solve this. This is a multi-year investment opportunity, and I think some of the larger all-of-food services companies are, are very well positioned. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of uh, similar to what I was just talking about with regards to minerals and metals, is like you, you want to find kind of the, the entire value chain. And so to, to us, you know, that we would definitely agree with, with, with Jay with regards to refining and marketing um, here in the U.S. or in Europe, uh, but then tie that with, you know, an upstream position primarily in the EMP space. And when, you know, I would just encourage you when you hear energy transition, don't just think about solar or wind or, you know, EVs. Think about the transition that I described at the very beginning that a lot of these oil companies have had with regards to their to their operational management, their financial management, and into uh, their valuation and how you know you know that's definitely definitely different different from uh, what we've seen in the past 
Well, Sean, Jay, thank you both for dropping by UBS On Air Market Moves. We covered a lot of ground over the past 30 minutes, and of course, the conversation will continue in many respects. So looking forward to having you both back on to follow up on these energy topics. Though, thank you again for your time and insights today. Appreciate it as always. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.